what even like basic philosophical categories become subsumed under identity categories i mean it's just astonishing uh mark splainers this you know everything is like turned into some no, fucking everything, problem everything is a fucking identity like the most yeah. banal disposition is like is now becomes wrapped into a marketing category it's awful Hello, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. I'm a very bunged up Alex Hochuli, so excuse my nasalness. We're trying out a new format today. It's called Three Articles. How this works is that we each bring an article which we read this week and which we found to be pertinent uh, for the rest of us to discuss. This week, and this is purely by chance, I think the, the themes of them have loosely coalesced around the theme of declining US legitimacy and the declining US empire but basically how this will work is that each of us will introduce the article that uh, we found pertinent this week and then we're going to discuss it so firstly phil you brought us one on the impending trump impeachment tell us first of all who the article is by where it was and uh, give us a brief summary of its argument so it's called impeachment is regime suicide and it's published in the spectator usa the American sister magazine of the um, British uh, right-wing journal, The Spectator. It's a remarkable, I think it's a tr- remarkable article of all the commentary on the, um, all the commentary on the impeachment of um, Donald Trump and all the efforts to impeach him. And the reason for that is that it's, um, it just goes above, um, it, removes itself from all the kind of tactical um, discussions about how to do it, whether to do it, how it will affect the Republicans, how it'll affect the presidential um, race, how it'll affect the Democrats' chances, these kinds of discussions, and rather simply looks at it in the context of the entire political system of the US and makes the case that the effort to, um, that the Trump election was effectively an impeachment of the political elite um, by the American populace. And so the effort to remove Trump by uh, these kind of legal shenanigans and tricksiness um, entirely contained within the elite institutions of U.S. government will lead to a catastrophic collapse of legitimacy for the political system. So what's striking about it is it's, um, you know, he speaks from, he talks about the ruling class and firmly locates himself within it. And he sees it as a failure of America's ruling class as a whole, not something which is to be blamed on um, you know, one, um, one party or the other and makes very clear that it simply won't follow the pattern of previous attempts at impeachment, either of Nixon or of Clinton, because the, there's no degree of consensus um, within the US, no degree of political legitimacy in the existing system to sustain a effort to remove a president without an election. And so the, it would have been so their attempt to do it uh, to oust Trump without an election will be a turning point effectively for the U.S. political system. So it's striking for for its radicalism, basically, for something which is so radical and clear sighted to be published in um, a right wing magazine. And I think it, to that extent, it's exceeded any common other commentary that I've seen. Um, including that in Jacobin, for instance, which had a kind of uh, stage, this kind of debate between 
whether the left should welcome or oppose the impeachment of Trump. And it got bogged down in this kind, in this tedious tactics without um, being able to unequivocally um, see what a complete disaster it's going to be for US politics as a whole. Yeah, so I think it might also even be worth adding a little bit of detail for listeners who haven't read the article yet in uh, about the contrast that the article makes with the impeachment of Nixon, Clinton, and then now with Trump. Um, the, the point it makes about Nixon is that Nixon still retained a great, a, a reasonable degree of support and the regime retained a high degree of support and that there was a degree of consensus in American society the existence still of a large mainstream, which could swing one way or the other, but which was relatively cohesive, despite the the kind of ongoing political and cultural wars of the 1960s and afterwards. Um, and I think that's what I found really interesting, that, you know, you could excise this bad apple, uh, Nixon, for his crimes around Watergate, but, you know, that would be accepted because... Uh, the, the 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 establishment still retained legitimacy. That was probably less the case with Clinton. But I think it, it makes the point with with, Kim, uh, with Clinton that impeachment was a circus, but it wasn't a national trauma to to impeach him. Whereas with Trump, you have this uh, this situation where one things are so fractious that impeachment is not such a big deal. But on the other hand, it would be traumatic in the sense that as Trump represents the sort of anti-consensus, or at least that there's a, a huge degree of anti-consensus behind him and him being the sort of main anti-politician, that to impeach him would be the revenge of the regime against this sort of anti-politics of Trump. And that puts the question in a very different way to, to how it's normally discussed, which is one a, a really, as, as Phil, or you alluded to, a really much more limited tactical discussion about whether advances such and such as interest or not. It, it places the question of the legitimacy of the American regime right at the center of it. Mm. And I think it's, it was a really interesting article, very thought-provoking, and it, it, it completely aligns with, with what is probably the most important point about this, that it is an, it's a form of anti-politics. I mean, an impeachment is a way that an elite that's lost its faith in voters as a mechanism of political change attempts to attempts to change something, and that is um, only going to to serve to reinforce the the dynamic which causes them to resort to these sorts of maneuvers in the first place. So I think it's interesting that it it kind of of course from a conservative point of view, and conservatives who talk about ruling class are always kind of interesting because at least they unlike liberals get the idea that there's a class struggle going on. They're on the other side obviously um but yeah so the, it kind of gets that it's it is a symptom of this problem that it's that it's that it can't possibly it can't possibly solve and in fact can only make a lot a lot worse um whether it's successful or not and of course you know it seems quite it seems obvious to anybody looking at this with a clear you know clear view that trump's not going to be impeached yeah i mean it's the political theater of it which is um at least it seems, I mean, it seems impossible that the impeachment could get through the Senate. But the um, the fact that he's willing to talk in terms of regime, and as George suggests, um, as a conservative writer, um, this the, the author of the piece, is clear about power, authority, um, and the solidarity of elites and the necessity for solidarity of elites if they're to uh, maintain their rule. 
the fact that society is divided among competing interests and antagonism, as you suggest, and all of this makes it much more clear-sighted than um, than much of what I've read in left of centre or left of um, or leftist uh, commentary on impeachment, and to that degree, I think emphasises just how much um, uh, lame liberal outlook which is just about kind of institutions, tactics, um, who's up and who's down, the kind of um, bien pensant kind of um, op-ed approach to politics, how much that attitude and outlook has infected um, political commentary across the board, including on the left. No, I think that's a, that's a good point about um, the vacancy of a lot of liberal commentary. And as we've said on this podcast a number of times, I think when you do get those rare, clear-sighted conservatives uh, they are far more useful in terms of trying to grasp what's going on in society than a lot of liberals who hide behind some uh, received notions about there being a certain consensus. Um, yeah, and as George said, you know, like there's a war going on and they, they at least recognize it. I think it, one of the things which really struck me from this article and something I had probably hadn't thought about in explicitly these terms is that, and I'm going to quote here, they said that, you know, what stands behind Trump is a growing anti-consensus, a force that declares every center of power in this country illegitimate and antithetical to the well-being of the people. And so, you know, with the impeachment of Trump, there is no consensus to save this time. What's interesting is that there's a very important misrecognition going on from the part of Democrats, especially, and to a certain degree, more kind of centrist Republicans, which is that they think that there still is a consensus, they think that there's a cultural mainstream which uh, is moderate and um, is fully behind the institutions of American <clears throat> of the American state, which it's far more fractious than that. It's far more far more divided along kind of you know the kind of cultural culture wars lines rather than any you know kind of class politics lines, um, and then institutionally the idea that there's this you know that there's respect for the rules of the game of institutionality and so on that is still there that needs to be preserved and that trump has is this incur uh, is this incursor who's kind of ripping the rules to shreds mm. but you know what, what makes what where like the the appeal of trump lies where especially the like the libidinal appeal of trump lies is him going we're all corrupt you guys are corrupt i'm corrupt now let's just get the fuck on with things right and we, which is what it, which is what his strategy is with Biden as well, with trying to demonstrate uh, Biden as corrupt, and then of course the Democrats feel like that's kind of unfair or hypocritical, whereas Trump is pretty naked in his hypocrisy about this, right? Mm. Um, and and so that I think shows you know the Democrats are still playing a game which maybe worked and made sense in the nineties. Um, it didn't make much sense in the 2000s, certainly not by the late 2000s. No. It's important to recognize that, you know, that Obama constantly tried to reach across the island so on, and the, and the, and the, and the Republicans kept kicking him in the nuts. Uh, yeah. And, the, and the, so the Trumps and the Democrats are still, or at least the, the mainstream of the Democrats, you know, I think Bernie lies outside of that, um, are, are still trying to play that game and trying to rescue a consensus that does not exist anymore. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, the end of history ended. And they haven't they haven't heard they didn't didn't get that that memo. Um, yeah, it's it's just striking how, you know, this is exactly the sort of move that proved Trump right in all of his 2016 campaign um, um, uh, pronouncements. And this is this is the symptom. This is the system responding to somebody who presents themselves as trying to change it. And it's like, yeah, this is 
it's just how can they not perceive that this is exactly the sort of thing that they shouldn't be doing the, the democrats i know this is moving back into tactics and, and consequences but it just seems like they lack that systemic view of, of what of, of yeah of, of what the um american political system is is based on because they just have this i think it's an i think it's essentially a moral uh narrative you know it's basically like a pantomime this you know you've got the bad guy and he's still there so there has to become some point at which and not to talk about harry potter too much but you know there has to come a point at which the, the, the bad man is 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 kicked out of office because there is some sort of as the article says healthy old-fashioned pro-establishment consensus that emerges out of sheer revulsion at trump and no that's not that's not the case people people have seen through this this establishment system and they don't think it really works so they're they don't understand that they don't have um an army behind them which is of course uh sad to see i mean i my one last point maybe to discuss on this article or, or a thought that it's prompted is to be clear i guess amongst ourselves you know what we mean when we talk about consensus and the end of consensus because you know what is often spoken about is you know post politics uh, of you know especially of the of the nineties and two thousands is consensus politics, uh, consensus around the rule of the market, around technical expertise, um, around how narrow politics functions, how elections work, and how elections reach out to certain predetermined demographics, uh, which are there to be captured. Uh, by one force or the other within a very limited window of, of politics. And that's like sort of co- consensus politics. And it's a, it's, a, it's really a form of, of uh, the opposite of politics. It's a negation of politics, right? Because politics fundamentally is the opposite of that. It's dissensus. And what this article points to is that there was a greater degree of consensus before the 90s and 2000s. So, you know, like t- thinking about the 1960s or 1972, um, you know, in the Nixon period, that there was a greater degree of consensus. Now, we would probably argue against that normally, right? We would say, well, no, there was much more intense class politics then. Um, there was politics proper then in a way that, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, there wasn't. But I think it was predicated on that consensus, perhaps, because there is um, consensus about what problems are confronting um, American society and American politics as a whole. So the intensity of and the clarity of um, the clarity of the battle lines suggests that people know on which to you know what terrain they're fighting and that the terrain is worth fighting over, whereas perhaps now I think the um, degree of political fragmentation and people fighting on all sorts of different kinds of terrain when they would perhaps rather be fighting on another, and there's constant frustration. Why aren't we talking about mm. this? We need to talk about that. Um, you know, kind of uh, people, we end up talking about, um, or proxy, you know, lots of kind of cultural uh, cultural issues become proxy battles for um, political struggles between left and right. So I think, you know, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think the idea, the idea that there was a greater consensus in earlier times um, is not exclusive of the idea that you could have um, more sharply antagonistic politics, either. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's right. I think that's. I mean, I, kind of what I was trying to drive at. Um, 
and yeah, which this which this article highlights exactly that you can have a kind of you know, social consensus at least around what what the important things are and where the dividing lines are. Whereas yeah, today you have I guess fragmentation is is the right way to put it, um, and you have a polarization along cultural lines, which is way stronger than you know the than you had in the late '60s, despite the images you know that everyone's like kind of grown up with and and the kind of mythos of of the '60s and so on, um, of you know the '60s rebellion and and the two sides on on very polarized, which there was, but it was I think much more grounded on properly political questions rather than kind of cultural dispositions and tribes in the way that politics has become, especially since the the '90s onwards. I think that might. If we, if you guys are cool with this, we move on to the next one because it might be a, a kind of nice segue, um, because George's article brings up the question of generations and rebellion, um, and rebellion against your parents. So, George, uh, take us away. What's your article? Yeah, so um, I very much enjoyed uh, Shuja Hader's um, centrist child syndrome, which is in the outline was in the outline on the thirtieth of. September and the basic idea is that you have uh, seemingly a raft of centrist or left centrist um, political figures including uh, Hillary Benn, Ed Miliband, David Miliband, Kamala Harris um, and Pete Buttigie if that's how you pronounce his, his name. I've heard it pronounced a number of different ways um, and what do they all have in common? So they basically have Marxist or far left dads. So the question is well, not to sort of psychoanalyze them, but what what explains this? What um, <clears throat> why is it that it seems like you have all of these um, all of these politicians who maybe are rebelling against the uh, or more radical um, politics of their or particularly of their of their fathers? So, um, and I just think it's it's interesting because it. You know, it raises the question of of what does that rebellion potentially look like if your, you know, if your parents are, are, are cooler than you, if they have better politics um, than you. So it's kind of an inversion of this, um, this which might be particularly British, this centrist dad trope, um, which is a sort of the the sensible um, sort of uh, mature politics of the um of the kind of the middle-aged or the the father character but in fact it's it's the other way around it seems like the sensibleness is the um uh is contained in the in the in the centrist politicians who um who who's are reacting potentially against their against their parents so yeah i just i just found it interesting because it potentially could make us think a little bit about where is it that the anti-radicalism of um, some of today's centrism comes from? Is there a uh, Oedipal um, explanation at some somewhere there? Yeah, I, I really like this article too because it brought to mind something which is, you know, the question of rebellion. It's so much of it is default assumed to be what the kind of 60s rebellion represented, which was fundamentally an anti-authoritarian rebellion against the previous generation. And there was much more of a, a generational consciousness then. I think each subsequent generation has tried to repeat that, but it feels always a little bit hollow just because um, I think things have probably become a lot more f- 
fragmented since then. So you, you haven't had a kind of new generation which has entered the universities, had a disposable income suddenly and has rebelled against its parents. You know, I think subsequent generations have been a little bit more confused. Um, but it, it, it does raise the question exactly of what rebellion consists in and that it doesn't necessarily need to consist in a sort of you know, anti-authoritarian fuck you dad kind of thing. It can be in a kind of like, you know, why dad, why do you care so much? I want to care less about things or I want to care about different things. And what it really brought to mind uh, was I had, so I had this line manager in a, in a previous job in the, in the previous decade um, who was a very, very Gen Y, you know, I think he had like come of age in the late eighties, early nineties. And you know, I think me and another colleague said, like, you know, we were interested in politics, we were discussing politics, and he thought that that was just the lamest fucking thing. He was like, what? Why are you guys interested? When I was growing up, we just wanted to, like, smoke pot and, like, do alternative stuff and, you know, set up our own raves. And for him, it was all about rebellion, was expressing a kind of cultural rebellion and was a kind of, a, you know, letting yourself off the hook of the responsibilities and demands and duties of past political commitment uh, which you know, even even for the for the Gen Xers was all about idealism. For their children, it was like an, a sort of anti-idealism, at least in terms of not being beholden to the responsibilities that idealism imposes, and instead just saying, "Well, I want to do my own thing. I want to basically allow myself to pursue interesting consumer things uh, and not uh, not be responsible for society." You know, mm. basically, we don't live in a society, and I want to do my own fucking thing. Fuck you, um, and. Yeah, so it's it's, it's it's not that kind of anti anti authoritarian um, impulse. So it's not a straight reaction to that kind of sixty eight anti authoritarian. No, it, it's not um, a conservative response. It's, no, it's more just it's an anti idealist yeah. uh, rebellion, I, which is really odd. And I think and and okay, that was slightly different because he's talking about smoking pot and wanting wanting to like. Uh, set up his own raves and whatever, and thinking politics was like a dead lame thing to think about and to care about. Um, you know, the, the example given of Buttigieg, I still can't pronounce his name, you know, Buttigieg. How do you say it? I I, I don't know. I've read his uh, his father's translations <laughs> of Gramsci. But, but something, but no, something, but... but yeah. I think it's Buttigieg. Anyway, Mayor Pete, Mayor Pete. Let's just call him Mayor Pete. Example of a guy. No, don't, no, no, and no. Look, it's like Horace and all, don't call him by his Well, I don't know name. how to pronounce his surname. Anyway, Buttigieg, he is, is a guy who thinks it's being... he's being really cool in saying, hey, we should have consensus. We shouldn't have all this like polarized, angry stuff. Like that really turns people off, man. And he couldn't be further from the truth as our discussion about the the waning consensus in American politics about the previous article really demonstrates. Yeah, I think it's it's clear that these um, children are fully paid up members of the PMC. Um, They're ex-consultants and sort of successful lawyers or prosecutors. and the, the thing which does unite them is that they reject idealism for a sort of, you know, an authentic realism. You know, they're, they're, they're not, they don't have time for these kind of dreams of a different society. They just want to get things done. And sometimes that means doing things slowly and doing things carefully. And that's okay. That's how you achieve change in politics. Um, I'm not sure. It, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, it's a bit odder than that though, isn't it? Because, um, if you think about a traditional kind of political realism, it's um, ruthless 
say, probably nationalistic, you know, what matters most is the interest of the nation, to which um, certain, um, you know, certain interests might have to be sacrificed. Um, there's a public, there's a strong sense of public good, which would be associated with the nation. I mean, that would be what traditional kind of political realism would mean, whereas this is much more, um, there's less of a sense of uh, direction or guiding purpose. It's, um, you know, what works best, let's, let's ask the experts. So that kind of that technocratic pragmatism, um, insofar as it claims to be realistic, it is also a break from, um, you know, a few centuries of what political realism counted for. Mm. Um, in at least in modern politics, very boring realism. Crazy um, how delusional realism is today. I think that's a good point, Phil, that you've made about today's realism. You know, it's pragmatism really uh, being so divergent from any sort of realism because it's precisely not hard-headed, right? It it doesn't take people's interests and ideals seriously at all. It just kind of tries yeah. to smooth them over. So it's it's very unrealist. Very soft-headed. Is this what you're saying? But one thing that's brought what raised in the article was, um, you know, that uh, and I forget who the who the author cites, but, uh, you know, a psycho um, analytical tract, which points out that uh, or argues that adolescence is the putting away of the wrong childish mm. things. So you, you end up binning the wrong bits. Adam that Phillips. You, they should do. Yes, that's it. So, well, he, I think here's the case is clear with someone like Mayor Pete or the other example used in the article, which is uh, uh, Kamala Harris, which is instead of binning, you know, getting rid of unseriousness and keeping rebellion, you know, that keep the good thing from, from adolescence, which is the rebellion, they instead get rid of the rebellion, but they maintain a sort of political levity um, instead of being really dead serious and idealistic about your politics. Uh, I thought that was a nice way of putting it. Mm. They, 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 they're putting away the wrong childish things. I think they're they're sensible. This is the the uniting thing. That it it is a you know it's a um, a particular way of presentation towards politics, which is one of you know let's 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 be let's be adults. Let's be serious for a minute. You know, obviously these this um, some of the things which Kamala Harris is dad wrote about you know these you know they're just exaggerations they're just you know that's 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 not serious let's let's talk about what we can what we can um do in a sort of in a sensible way you know we, we have to accept all these constraints um and i think there's there is a there is a kind of you can see where this comes out of the the actual you know material conditions the defeat of the the organized working class it it, it in some ways becomes an embarrassment potentially to these uh, to these people that their their parents are talking about a sort of radicalism which doesn't correspond to the the forces which they see in front of them um i mean obviously this is it seems a bit out of out of step with with times at the moment but particularly in the case of the millibands and the 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 ben um that seems you, know, it, it, you can sort of understand why they would be reacting against people who who would have said oh but didn't your didn't your dad write a book about parliamentary socialism and how the labor party's shit and you're trying to become the leader of it or whatever i suppose the one thing that i think is interesting is that they rebelled but didn't go to the right um instead they kind of um it's not even like a proper rebellion <laughs> to that degree um, it's, Drop, they um, dropped out, right? They didn't move left or move right against their parents. 
uh, or, you know, in contrast yeah. to their parents, they sort of dropped out. And, and they didn't obviously drop out in the sense of becoming layabouts. They obviously became very professionalized political operators, but they dropped out of kind of caring. Okay, that sounds a bit of a soppy way to put it, but they dropped out of any sort of idealistic or, you know, commitment. Yeah, any sort of idealistic commitment. Yeah, they drop out of the... They drop out of the kind of confrontational vision of politics, yeah. um, you know, meaningful, you know, in a meaningful sense. They drop out of the idea that politics is a struggle between left and right. Instead, that it's um, technocratic management. And I, I mean, you know, I mean, to some degree, obviously, that's um, that's been the defining characteristic of politics for the last 30 years or so, um, especially since the end of the Cold War. So insofar as they came of age and um, insofar as their careers um, took off within that period to succeed within it. That's how they shaped themselves. But it's still, you know, nonetheless, it is still quite striking how, um, you know, a real kind of rebellion, I suppose, would be if you had left parents, you would either, like you say, go further to the left or go to the right. Um, if you have right wing parents, you'd have gone to the left, you know. But in the case of these guys, they kind of um, they go they go to the center. <laughs> go against politics, yeah, I think. Yeah, I guess there's a question today. You know, what happens if your parents were were Lib Dems or were kind of centrist? Then what do you how do you rebel against that? Do you, you go far left or far right or do you go radical center? Do you become like a centrist, but you really you're really idealistic about changing things very, very slightly? Um, you're very, you know, you're very radical about um uh technocracy i don't know there you go <laughs> no, that's, I mean, that's my that's my my question for this what how, how does I mean, it well, how does it work your if your parents are already answered yeah i mean not not so much with regard to the kind of parental relationship but you know angela nagel's kill all normies addresses this question or at least you know finds evidence of what the contemporary rebellion looks like and it you know ends up being kind of the sort of alt-right transgression mm. Of course, that itself is changing, you know, and I think probably things have moved on uh, rather a great deal since even she she did her research. All the normies um, were killed. So yeah, well, we should actually maybe get her on to, to, to talk about this, though I'm pretty sure she doesn't want to talk about it anymore. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, it being an Internet phenomenon, it is incredibly dynamic and fast moving. So um, I wonder whether, you know, whether that kind of trumpian sort of alt-right has sort of changed and split and 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 transformed but anyway that might that's maybe for another time okay so should we move on to the to the last of the three articles i'll take that as a resounding yes Yes, uh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, we should, yeah. Yeah, you don't have to be so consensual and be like, oh, can we all, are we all cool with doing this? Are we all cool with doing that? No. Okay, I mean, my turn, my turn. Yeah, my turn, then. you know, put, right, put yourself so, forward, back yourself to, uh, to, to not, to crush this or whatever the phrase is. Knock <laughs> it out of the park. Yeah. Yeah, don't be, don't be like, don't be like Mayor Pete. Yeah, don't be like Mayor Pete. Uh, so my article is from The Intercept. It's by John Schwartz. Uh, the U.S. is now betraying the Kurds for the eighth time. I mean, it's a little bit of a history lesson, but I think it's worthwhile because we are recording this on Tuesday, the 8th of October. You're probably only listening to this about a week or so later on, but it no doubt will uh, remain in the news then because 
Yesterday, it was announced that Trump had given the green light to Erdogan, to Turkey, to carry out an offensive uh, against the Kurds in northern Syria, and that the U.S. would be pulling out its troops from there to allow that offensive to take place. Um, obviously, it's a disaster for the Kurds, and I think we can lament that without um, putting ourselves in a situation of wishing the U.S. troops would remain there. Um <clears throat> But I think it's also worth reflecting a little bit on on the position that the Kurds occupy and maybe a little bit about the kind of what Trump's foreign policy is, because we've been talking a lot about Trump and the U.S. establishment, uh, thinking a little bit about how it's how it has certain continuities in terms of, you know, as regards the Kurds, that it has uh, the U.S. has betrayed the Kurds yet again. So therefore, still continuity. But in other ways, how maybe the Trump administration's foreign policy represents certain discontinuities and changes um, in contrast to maybe even more hawkish administrations, be it of George W. Bush or of Obama. Uh, so, I mean, the article, just to summarize, goes through eight different important betrayals um, of the U.S. with regard to the Kurds, uh, the first being... Uh, in the early 1920s, around the around the the Treaty of Siez and uh, the Lausanne Treaty, as well at the end of the Second World War, which uh, excuse me, the First World War, which dismembered the Ottoman Empire, uh, and a number of other cases in which the Kurds were instrumentalized uh, to destabilize uh, a regional opponent of the U.S. And actually, it was first done to. Um, to destabilize uh, the Iraqi regime, then to destabilize the Iranians, and then to destabilize the Iraqis again. Um, and this flip-flopping, I think, you know, and, and the very instrumental use and then abandonment of the Kurds speaks to the particular situation of the Kurds in the region, which is that, I mean, they're the largest ethnic group in the Middle East not to have their own state. And I think for that reason, they end up very prone to um, to being used by great powers Which you know, of course, I think one's sympathetic to to um, you know the Kurds' demand for for their own nation. But I think that you know you have to examine what the politics is in each of those cases. In Iraqi Kurdistan, for example, you know you don't really want to defend the the Barzani's there um, because they're kind of a, a kleptocratic, clientelistic, and corrupt elite. Whereas the Kurds in Syria, of course, uh, mm. have uh, a much more kind of rad- radical trajectory, the sort of democratic confederalism, uh, which we might want to discuss a little bit about. Um, so, guys, what do you think, Phil, maybe first? Uh, what, what What's your take on the American betrayal of the Kurds yet again? It's, um, I mean, it's a bitter and um, it's a bitter thing to read. And, I mean, it's a good article insofar as it lays things out with great clarity and also doesn't overlook some of the forgotten episodes such as um, what the Nick, what the Nixon administration and Henry Kissinger did in the 70s with um, in well before the Shah was overthrown or before the Iran-Iraq war and before the Gulf War and so on. So, you know, it's really useful. But I suppose two things, um, two things come out, which um, are the tacit, uh, I suppose, tacit assumptions always built into the discussion of the um, the role of the Kurds and the way in which they're manipulated. The first is, I suppose, what's the alternative? Because for the Kurds not to be um, not to be betrayed is for for what exactly? I mean, what does it mean not to betray the Kurds? Does it mean 
um, that the U.S. should establish a client state, a kind of a Kurdish statelet, that it should protect indefinitely and it should carve it out of Syrian territory? Um, does it mean that they should sponsor some kind of Kurdish separatist movement indefinitely, um, independently of whether or not the U.S. has any kind of particular political interest? Um, does it mean we should launch a humanitarian intervention to defend the Kurds so we don't kind of politically commit to anything, but that we at least um, protect the Kurds from being ravaged by um, the Turkish military forces and their local um, jihadi allies and Islamist militias, um, and to spare Kurds from being ethnically cleansed yet again? So, I mean, when we say we betray the Kurds, it's never it's never clear what not betraying the Kurds would look like, except an exercise, necessarily some kind of exercise of imperial American power. That's the first problem. The second issue that, that strikes me is the fact that um, there's also a tendency to romanticize the Kurds in this as well. Um, kind of powerless, uh, naive, helpless and hapless dupes of our, of our um, ruthless political cunning that these naive, um, kind of naive tribal mountain men whose hearts are pure and whose only, who only kind of think of their, um, who only think of their national kind of aspirations, which have always been so brutally crushed. And here we are abusing, abusing these kind of, um, these naive childlike tribal people. And I think that also should be questioned because I think part of the, um, uh, part of the problem for the Kurds is um, is not you know it's obviously not that they're um, uh, a nation of children, but that their political representatives and their political structures are also part of the problem for themselves as well, such as um, the um, the Barzani regime in Iraqi Kurdistan, but also the um, much kind of over the much vaunted radicalism of the um of rojava in syria which uh is you know for all of its kind of pretensions to some kind of anarcho democratic confederal whatever is um an off weird postmodern stalinism an offshoot of one of the most kind of ruthlessly stalinist um organized guerrilla organizations of the cold war the pkk in turkey and i don't think the kurds are particularly well served by um by that kind of politics either yeah, I think, I mean, it was a good, it, it, I think it's a good article and it's kind of a sobering and slightly uh, de depressing read. Um, and I think that, you know, to, to kind of touch on Phil's last point a little bit, I mean, the, so the, the article talks about, you know, eight, eight times that this, that this thing has happened, this this be the eighth time. And it does make you think, well, it's kind of semi-serious point that if something happens eight times then is talking about betrayal and sort of moral language like that particularly useful you know it seems like there is probably a structural problem a lack of power and a lack of um representative institutions which are actually enabling this group to, to not have to be um dependent on the 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 good wishes of the the imperial powers that um that may or may not uh, betray them um but i think it, it's kind of a bit of a, um, it got me thinking if the first, you know, if the first one was tragedy and the second one was, was farce, 
then by the time you get to to eight, what are you what are you at by then? You've gone through your sort of your reboots and your dark reboots. <laughs> it's like a Marvel <laughs> comic series. It's keep on fucking happening. Um, but yeah, I think it's um, yeah, it's, it's, it is a, it is a sort of a a, a bit of a um, yeah a sobering read, I think, um, because you you just yeah you you sort of see how these um these things happen again and again you know doom repeat well and i think it's also worth drawing attention yeah as phil mentioned as well the the internal kurdish politics because precisely because you have range from you know the pkk stalinism and then its own transition to the sort of libertarian socialist sort of thing um you know after the end of the cold war and the fact that they didn't have moscow support anymore and, you know, in a much more conservative sort of politics, conservative nationalist politics uh, led by the Barzanis, you know, I think the, the, the Kurdish nationalists will be much more willing to ally to the U.S. instrumentally because their end goal is purely a nationalist one in terms of achieving their own state or the, a large degree of autonomy, depending on, on which way you look at it. I mean, Turkey, Turkey's Kurds in the PKK never really called for an independent Kurdish state and often were just more militated for, for autonomy. Um, whereas th- those are the more, you would think, uh, a more socialist political project rather than just a nationalist one would be more wary of um, <clears throat> using the U.S. umbrella. Um, but I think, you know, if you read accounts uh, from Kurds, from people who've gone and fought with the YPG and so on, I think they are very conscious of the way that they feel that they're using the U.S. to the extent that it, that the, it can be used, but that it won't last forever. Um, and if you saw picture, you know, images now of um, big protests and demonstrations in uh, Kurdish Syria, resisting, uh, you know, the, the impending uh, Turkish intervention there. So I don't think there's that many illusions there, but it's also a very dis- desperate situation for for the Kurds. I mean, you know, I was just in in um, Turkish Kurdistan or Kurdish Turkey, uh, depending how you want to look at it, um, in August. And it is striking the degree of Turkish military presence all around the region, uh, the way that people talk in hushed tones and are, you know, very skeptical of telling you too much because, you know, they're wary of exactly who you are. Um, And just the stories of of oppression and torture in in the jails there um, is quite striking. So, you know, they are very much stuck between a rock and a hard place. And you feel that for for the Kurds, as far as statehood goes, uh, they missed the boat uh, on, you know, on when state could could have been achieved uh, unless there was a more wholesale destruction of the state system in in the in the Middle East, which looked like it might be possible, but now that moment possibly seems to have passed. Um, maybe just to finally round this out, we want to talk a little bit about you know, and and to kind of maybe bring it back to some of the things we were talking about in terms of the U.S. establishment, what Trump's foreign policy looks like in light of uh, his little deal with with Erdogan, basically stepping back, because I think it contrasts. A little bit with the sort of Obama administration's kind of permanent war effort and permanent uh, installation of U.S. forces and and ground troops in you know in Iraq and Afghanistan and the failed withdrawals there um, versus Trump, who seems much more willing to uh, to step aside. Do you, Phil, what do you what do you think on that? 
I think it might be a bit too early to tell. I mean, um, I mean, so we've uh, we've talked previously about how Trump is um, remarkably a remarkably anti-war president for all of his um, nationalistic posturing and preening and um, his attempt to rejuvenate. Uh, you know, what's a, well, his attempt to um, pursue trade wars against both Germany and China, but he's. Um, nonetheless been much more um, suspicious and discriminating with respect to the use of force in contrast to large, you know, the last um, several or even longer US administrations. So with in that, I mean, it's a bit hard to read, I think, because already he's very sensitive to the criticism and, you know, he's been tweeting on, um, tweeting about how with incredible, um, I mean, really shocking levels, not only of kind of bombastic crudity and chauvinism, but also the fact that he's talking like that about one of America's most long-standing NATO allies in the Middle East, where he threatened to obliterate and destroy the Turkish economy if the Turks stepped out of line in their intervention in Syria. So, I mean, I think all in all, it speaks more to the incoherence of Trump's foreign policy. And they might roll back, you know, they might now um, say when first, when the first horrible news emerges from um, of a massacre committed, say, maybe by a pro-Turkish militia or something, or ethnic cleansing of Kurds by Turkey's allies on the ground, that they might um, immediately flip over and he will insist that the Turks withdraw their forces or that there's a safe haven or aid corridor established. So I think the overall picture is still one of um, complete incoherence. Yeah, he doesn't. He 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 doesn't seem to um, be particularly keen on on humanitarian intervention as a as a concept in the way that Obama clearly had a vision of of America as a you know as a as a potential savior. Um, and obviously, all the, the many many problems with humanitarian intervention. I mean, of course, the the stereotype of Trump's foreign policy is that he's a he's a or his own portrayal is that he's a deal maker you know any any time that you have to that you have to go to war it's a failure of failure to make a to make a deal and to come to an agreement um but yeah i think i mean phil put it well that it's it's and it seems to be an incoherent foreign policy with um a rotating cast of more or less reliable or or um in themselves quite incoherent advisors so i think yeah it's difficult it's it's difficult to sort of see what how this fits into a, a wider regional um strategy if one if one even exists yeah i mean i think probably looking more long term you can say that it is emblematic to a certain degree of the declining cogency of american foreign policy which itself is a product at home of the the declining coherence of, of the American ruling class. Uh, that isn't to say that, you know, when faced with a class enemy, they won't unite <laughs> to face that down. But um, in absence of a strong challenge, there remains a, a kind of increasing fragmentation uh, in the U.S. establishment. And actually, that I think might be a nice way to round this off, given that uh, the three different articles we read touched on this on the central topic. 
Uh, as a way of concluding this, uh, maybe you should start with a welcome or end with a welcome rather. Uh, welcome to all our new patrons. Thank you for signing up. And thank you also to all our longer term existing patrons. We hope you're enjoying what we're doing. Uh, let us know also if you liked this format. It's a new thing we're trying out. Um, we think it's a maybe a nice way to rather than do some kind of current affairs-ish roundup. We're not writing the news here um but it's a nice way to analyze and explore certain themes so if you did like it let us know um and if you and if you didn't um you should also let us know um we don't get enough hate mail so um we'd be very happy to receive some all right that's it for now back again next week catch you later bye bye do people still do hate mail i mean it just takes a lot of effort doesn't it? It's mainly a hate tweet, and there's not. We don't get very much of that either. I think we should still have called this trilectics. You should have said, you should have said in your in your closing. I hope you like it. If dialectics is good, then trialectics. Trialectics. Give it a try. <sighs> or-